Man, guys, um, so good to gather with you today. And let me just tell you, um, if you're new, um, my name's Josh. Um, I'm the senior pastor of our church, and we're just really honored that you're here. Um, I do want to say this. We're in a season in our church's life where uh, coming out of every summer, we have these two, it's almost like these two things that are like two arteries that keep our spiritual hearts healthy. And it's the Bible and prayer. And we're in a season in our church's life where we're trying to drive both of those habits down into, um, into our, our, our hearts. And so, uh, man, I, I would say this. Um, we're in a series that we're just calling Read the Book. And each week of the series, what I'm doing is I'm taking one passage that we read in our church's uh, annual Bible reading plan. And I'm preaching on Sunday so that like when you get here, it can be like, oh man, like I read that on Monday. Or man, God spoke to me on Thursday in that passage. And, uh, and now we're worshiping in it together um, in, this, in the service. So, uh, man, I do want to say this. My entire goal today is not for you to leave and remember like some awesome tweetable sermon quote. Um, my goal is for you to leave and maybe for the first time in your life or for the first time in a long time, um, for you to take that step of getting in God's word regularly. Here's why I say that, man. The Bible always has a fresh word in season for us. Um, you can read a passage you've read a thousand times before and see something you've never seen before because God is changing you into somebody you've never been before. And so, uh, man, I just, I want to get that into our life. So if you're here and you're not on our, uh, our church's uh, Bible reading plan, here's what you can do. You got permission to play with your phone right now. If you'll do this, if you can at any point in the sermon, you just text the words, read the book, just those words, text read the book to the number 31996, and we'll shoot you our app, and then you can get a, a, a reminder every morning, here's today's Bible reading. And uh, just from my own personal life, I'll tell you, there is no habit that has changed my life more than just consistently feeding on the Word of God. And so if you're going to do anything today, if you did that, I'd feel like, all right, man, I succeeded, you know? So, so there it is. I'd also say this. Um, coming up with the other habit that we want to like instill into our church's heart is uh, we're in a season, we're finishing it up, that we call 21 Days of Prayer. And we do this two times in our church's life. Here's why we do it. Um, if, you, if you guys have ever noticed before that when Jesus ascended into heaven, the first thing that he told his disciples was not go. Um, he, he, the first thing he said was, was stay. And he said, man, stay so that you can receive power. And we as a church... Um, uh, just to shoot you straight, August and January, those are our biggest like harvest seasons as a church where we see the most people come to know God. And so what we do uh, is right before those seasons, we have 21 days where our whole church is praying together. And what we're doing is we want to stay in before we go out. Because if we don't stay in before we go out, we don't have any power to go out with. And so this uh, coming Wednesday, we've got our church-wide prayer and worship gathering. Columbia and Spring Hill will be together packing out this room. And, uh, and we'll just ask God to pour out His Holy Spirit on our church for the season. So if, uh, if you were to ask me, hey, Pastor Josh, uh, there's only, I can only make it to one service this entire year. Which one should it be? It's this one. I think it's the most important service in our church's entire year. So that'd be amazing. Um, also, I do one last note here. I do think this is funny. This week, uh, we did a uh, Facebook Live um, prayer gathering that a couple thousand of you kind of tuned into. Um, it was really funny. There was a church member who tried to encourage me after that Facebook Live broadcast. 
I let you guys know that sometimes I can have like crippling anxiety um, around preaching. It's just kind of scary for me. And, uh, and this person, they, uh, they sent me a message attempting to encourage me after that Facebook live gathering. This is a bridge person who shall remain nameless. And their message said, hey, Josh, don't try to be witty or funny or intelligent. Just be you. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I, thought, I was like, man, I'd like to extend them the old right hand of fellowship is what I'd like to do, you know, but that's what they said. So, all right, well, here we, here we go, guys. Today, we're in uh, Deuteronomy 30. Head to Deuteronomy 30. We need to move um, kind of quick today. And uh, let, me, let me set this up by saying this. It's really interesting. Um, the question that people are always trying to figure out right now in our culture is uh, the answer to the question, what is wrong with our world? And people's answers to that question diverge radically, um, especially, honestly, along political lines. Don't want to get weird here. Um, but it's really interesting. If you ask somebody from the political left, what is wrong with our nation and what's wrong with our world? Usually their answer to that question is something like, man, we have a broken system. It's issues like systemic racism or education system brokenness, poverty, social conditioning brokenness. But all of these things, the brokenness of the system, are producing the brokenness that we see in our world. Okay, that's, that's somebody on the left. Now, if you go and ask somebody on the political right, hey, what is causing the brokenness in our world? They say, they'll say, man, it's not a broken system. It's primarily broken families. It's, uh, it's man, the divorce rates in, in our nation are skyrocketing, the redefinition of marriage, the dissolution of the nuclear family. And so they'd say, man, not broken system. They'd say, man, broken family. Here's what's really interesting. When you come to the Bible, the Bible says the primary issue in the world is not a broken system. It's not broken families. The Bible says broken systems and broken families arise out of broken hearts. That the root issue with this world is inside of our chest and that there is something wrong with the human heart and all the brokenness that we see in the world comes out of the human heart that is broken inside of our chest. Now, what this passage does, that has huge ramifications for our nation, for our world. Um, what I would say, and you'll see this here in a few minutes, is that all of the brokenness that is happening in your life, all of your issues, your marriage issues, your parenting issues, uh, your crippling anxiety, your addictions, all of those things have the same root cause. It's your heart. It's a heart issue. Now, here's what's really interesting. This passage in Deuteronomy 30, what it does is it's God showing us Here's how I can address that issue. You can have a new heart. If you'll just read Deuteronomy 30, you know, you can have a new heart. So let's get into this. We'll be in Deuteronomy 30 together. Um, I'm going to run through the first six verses and kind of ring them out. So if you got your Bibles, Deuteronomy 30, pick up with me in verse one. Let's do this thing together. Here we go. Verse one. Now I'm going to point out a couple things and, and here you go. So, so track with me. It says, and when all these things come upon you, now let me pause. If you guys have been reading our Bible reading plan, you know that in Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 29, what God has just finished doing is he finished pronouncing what we're going to call a series of, listen, covenant blessings and covenant curses. So God entered into an agreement with the nation of Israel. And here's what he said. He said, here's all my commands. If you do these things, you'll live. Uh, your nation will prosper. Your families will prosper. You'll be full of joy and gladness and all that. Everything's going to go great. Okay. Covenant blessings in the next chapter, which freaked some of you out in the read the book reading this week, 
there was a whole series of what God calls covenant curses. If you fail to obey my commands, all these terrible things will happen to you. Um, You're going to lose your nation. You'll be scattered among all the nations of the world. You won't be prosperous. You'll be oppressed. Your families will suffer. So covenant blessings, covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Now, here's what's really interesting. Watch this. God in Deuteronomy 30 just goes ahead and tells them, I already know what you're going to do. And he says, and he doesn't say, and if all these things come upon you, he says, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you. And when you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord, your God has driven you and return to the Lord, your God, you and your children and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord, your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. Now watch this. And he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. There are incredible blessings that are promised with obedience, And the Lord your God will, this is such an interesting phrase, watch this, he will circumcise your heart. What does that mean? That sounds real weird. He will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will, this is interesting, love. That's what he says. That's what's going to be different when I circumcise your heart. You're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live, okay? All right, guys, now, there's so much going on here. Let me begin by explaining this. So I pointed this out to you. God already, he's a terrible, God is a terrible motivational speaker. Um, what he does is he lays out all the covenant blessings and curses, and then at the end he goes, and by the way, you're not gonna be able to keep any of them. You're gonna fail at all of them. All the covenant curses are gonna fall on you. And, and let me, let me uh, put on our Bible scholar hats for a second. He does this because of a Bible doctrine that Christians have historically called the sinful nature of man. That's where this is coming from, the sinful nature of man. Now, here's what the sinful nature means. It means that everyone everywhere is born with our default mode to sin. It's like the screensaver of your computer. If you don't touch it, you don't exert any force, what your heart reverts to is sin, We all are born with a bent to sin. Now, if you disagree with me, let me ask the experts in the room to testify to the reality of this doctrine. The experts in the room, the parents, parents, let me ask you this question. If you don't agree with me, parents, did you have to teach your children to do bad things or did they figure it out all on their own? There you go. I hear you right down here. I hear it. We're testifying today. That's right, man. They just fit. And listen, and a lot of times you've got one child who it comes more naturally to. That's a whole different sermon. But as we see is that you didn't have to send your kids to sin camp for them to figure out how to be selfish little brats. They figured that out all on their own. Do you know why? Because we are born with a sinful nature, a bent and a default mode to sin. Now, here's what that means, okay? If you don't track with me, what that means is you don't even possess the ability to obey all of the commands of God. You don't even have that ability. Now, I showed it to you in the passage. Let me show you to you in real life. Let me, uh, let me give two illustrations. One's intellectual, one's a little more personal, okay? For all you smart intellectual people in the room, there's a, a woman, a, a Christian scholar named Becky Pippert. She's an author, a, a philosopher, a theologian. 
Becky Pippert, before she was a Christian, she told this it's a fascinating little story about how she was auditing a Harvard psychology class. And she was in this class with a bunch of prospective students with a Harvard psychologist. And the professor was doing a case study about how he had, uh, had had a patient that he helped figure out a sort of root causes in her life and helped her see how much of her life had been dominated by her anger toward her mother. And she started to understand, and he showed her all the tentacles of that and why she was doing what she was doing and, and sort of helped her unearth all that. Uh, and after that, he just began to move on to the next case study. And Becky Pippert raised her hand and she said, well, wait a second, you told us what was wrong with the girl, but she said, wait, how do you help the person, right? That's a whole, ra- how do you help the person? And uh, uh, the Harvard psychologist was honestly taken back by the question. And, uh, and he said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, how do you help him forgive his mother? And he went on and he started explaining that, hey, psychology can show you sort of reasons of the heart and it can unearth for you why you do what you're doing and kind of help you understand yourself. But eventually he said, to quote him, he said, there really isn't anything I can do. And then he finished with his sentence. If you guys are looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. Now, isn't that interesting? Do you know what he was saying? Harvard psychology professor was saying, psychology can show you why you're doing what you're doing, and it can show you what you should be doing instead, but it has no power to help you do what you should be doing. That's interesting. I'll give you another one, okay? Let me make this a little more personal. Um, In the Bible, God gave us, uh, he boiled down everything he wants us to do into 10 rules. They're God's top 10, 10 most important things. We call them the 10 commandments. That's right. Ten commandments. Now, uh, if you are forgetting the Ten Commandments, help me out. I did this a few years ago, and this is really fun. You can do this with your kids. I'm going to do it with you. You're my kids today. Here we go. So do this with me. Uh, t- the Ten Commandments hand motions. This is a lot of fun. Do this with me. Everybody put up one finger. Everybody do it right now. Columbia, one finger up. Here you go. Ten Commandments hand motions. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. God's supposed to be number one in your life. Okay, now do this. Number two, hold up two fingers. Commandment number two is you shall not make for yourself a graven image, so cut out the idols from your life. Do that right there. Isn't this fun? This is fun right here. Cut out the idols from your life. Now, three fingers. Do this right here. Three fingers. Looks like a W. uh, W for words. Watch your words. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number three. Commandment number four. Look this. uh, Four fingers. There are four Sundays in a month. Commandment number four. Honor the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Commandment number five, this is my favorite commandment right now with two small children. Commandment number five, do this. Everybody do this. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Honor your father and mother. Yes, sir. Amen. That's my favorite one right now. Okay. Commandment number six, hold up six fingers. Do this. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Okay. Now, don't do that. Commandment number six. Now, don't don't hold up your thumb because that'd be a seven. Okay. Now, wait a second. Seven can lead to six sometimes, but that's a whole different sermon. Here's seven, commandment number seven, hold up seven fingers, you shall not commit adultery. There it is. Now here's how it goes, you shall not commit adultery. That's what that is. You can explain that to your kids later. Okay, number eight, number eight, hold up uh, eight fingers, do this. In some countries, they'll cut off your pinky. If you steal something, you shall not steal. That's commandment, but wait, I lied. I do have a pinky, commandment number nine, you shall not lie. There you go, that's it, okay. Now, commandment number 10 right here, 10 fingers, grab the head of the person in front of you. You shall not covet. There it was. That's it. Wasn't that fun? There you go. Commandment, there you go. 10 commandments, hand motions. Now, that's what God did. He condensed everything he wanted us to do down to just 10 rules. That's all you got to do. Keep just these 10 rules. Now, how do you think you're doing when it comes to those 10 rules? 
What's really interesting is if you examine your life, what you're going to find is not a single person in this room or in Columbia has ever in their life kept even one of these 10 commandments. Let me, let me show you this. So commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you realize that you have spent your entire life putting you and your interests over God and God's interests? You have loved other things more than you love God. So you've never, probably for a second in your life, kept commandment number one. Commandment number two, you should not make for yourself any graven image. Have you ever done this? Have you ever said things like, man, I imagine God is like, or my God would always, or the God I believe in would never? And in that moment, do you know what you're doing is you're constructing a false God in your head instead of the God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. And you have broken the second commandment. Commandment number three, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Man, half y'all didn't even make it through, you know, past the minivan without breaking that one today. Amen. But here's what commandment number three also means. What the real meaning of commandment three is, is you shall never do anything that is not of God and attach his name to it. So what that means is that, have you ever done this? Have you ever told somebody, man, God is leading me to, and really you just made that up. Or I feel like God wants me to, or I know that God wants me to, and those weren't things that God revealed in his word. And in that moment, what you did is you took the name of the Lord your God of vague. Commandment number four, honor the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Let me shoot you real straight. We track our records. We see y'all on average about two times a month. So I know you're not making that one, okay? Commandment number five, honor your father and mother. Man, that one is more of a ha, ha, ha. Man, there's, there ain't no way that for every second of your life from birth, you never had a sideways moment with your father and with your mother. Now, we get to commandment six, you shall not murder. Some of y'all are like, yes. I got one. That's one. But fast forward to Jesus. And Jesus said, he said, if you have ever hated your brother or sister in your heart, you failed to keep commandment number six at the heart level. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever had somebody in your life where your heart posture to them was such, listen, that you were glad when bad things happened to them and you were sad when good things happened to them? If so, and that is every one of us, every one of us, then you are a commandment number six breaker at the heart level. Now, commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Again, that's one. Some of you right now, you are broken at merely the suggestion or the mention of that commandment. Some of you right now, here's what Christians love to do. Christians love to take commandment number seven and draw a line between themselves and other types of sexual sinners and say, ha ha ha, you're the sinful people. We're doing good over here. But fast forward to Jesus and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus said is, if you have ever even looked lustfully at another woman with your eyes, you are failing to keep the seventh commandment at the heart level. Listen, Christians, what we like to do a lot of times is we like to draw a line between us and other sexual sinners. Let me shoot you real straight. If I'm reading Jesus in my Bible right, every single person over the age of about 13 is a commandment number seven breaker. We are all alike under sin. So commandment number seven, you're done. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Okay, now you may be going, okay, I'm great. Listen, if you grew up in the 90s and you had Napster, you're done. You didn't make it. You didn't even make it. You don't even know. Now, some of you are like, I don't even know what that is. And I need to, ha- I need to talk to you after, uh, afterwards out in the lobby. But have you ever had a moment where you, it's really funny watching people like, what Napster? What's Napster, right? Did you ever take a piece of candy from a gas station when you were a kid? Did you ever like, uh, did you ever attribute to yourself an action that you did not actually do to make yourself look better. In that moment, that wasn't just lying. You were stealing. You were taking a reputation that you did not own. And so every single one of us is a commandment number eight breaker. Commandment number nine. Commandment number nine is lying. (laughs) That's what I need to remember. Commandment number nine. Only liars say they've never broken commandment number nine. I know we're all good right there. Now, commandment number 10. 
you shall not covet. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet. Have you ever wanted something so deeply in your life that you could not be content in that moment without it? An object, a relationship, a person, a race. If so, you're a commandment number 10 breaker. Now, do you know what we just found out? We just found out that God condensed everything he wants us to do, and he gave us only 10 things, his top 10, and you've never kept a single one of them for your entire life. Do you know why? Because what's true in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, about the nation of Israel is true of you. It's not if you're going to break his commandments, it's when. You don't even have the ability to keep God's commands on your own power. Do you know why? Because the greatest problem in your life is a broken heart, and what that means is that your greatest need is a new heart. What you need more than anything else in this world is a new heart. In fact, let me say this to you. Do you know what a new heart would do in your life? It would fix your marriage. It would fix your relationship with your kids. It would free you from your addictions. You would get rid of your crippling anxiety. And so what you need more than anything else is not a fixed system, not a fixed family. What you need more than those things is a fixed heart. And what God says in this passage is, I can do that for you. I can do that for you. Look down at this passage down to this passage, and you'll notice in verse 6, verses 5 and 6, God says, he gives a weird solution. He says, here's what I'll do. Someday what I can do is I will, and then he says, I will circumcise your heart. Now, can we all be really honest with each other? That's weird. That's weird. What does it mean for God to circumcise our heart? Okay, what does that mean? Okay, now, Bible scholars, I need you to track with me for a second. Um, so we got to ask the question, what is circumcision? So I need everybody to put on their theological thinking cap for a second and nerd out with me on the Old Testament. And then this is going to make sense here in about 60 seconds, okay? So what's happening here is in the Old Testament, what God does is he establishes a series of what are called covenants with his people. In English, we might use the word contract or agreement. That's what a covenant is, a contract or agreement. And whenever in our culture, whenever we enter into a contract with somebody, we have a sign of the covenant to sort of put our name on that contract. Now, in our culture, the sign of the covenant or the contract is us actually signing the contract. That's what we do to say, I'm in, okay? That's not what they did in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when you entered into a contract with somebody, watch this, here's what happened. A lesser person would come to a greater person. And this greater person would be doing favors for the lesser person. And what they would do is before they entered into the contract, they would agree on all of the, watch this, the covenant blessings and covenant curses and covenant promises. The lesser and the greater would agree on those things. And then what they would do is whoever was the lesser person in the covenant is they would come and they would bring animals. They might bring a pigeon if they were poor. They might bring a slain lamb. They might bring an ox. And then they would slaughter those animals and they would line them up in an aisle. And what they would do to enter into that contract is they would walk in between the slain pieces of the animals and they would recite the covenant blessings and the covenant curses of the contract as if to say, if I break this contract, may I become like this slain animal. Now that may sound really weird to you. If we did that today, there'd be a lot fewer breach contracts. That's what they did. Okay, now watch this. We go back to the question. Why circumcision? Like, why in the world does God say, I'm going to set up a contract with these people and circumcision is going to be the sign of that covenant? Okay, now here's why. Okay, guys, circumcision, it's blood. You guys remember when you were young, okay? 
and you started asking your Sunday school teacher, like, what's circumcision? And nobody would tell you till you were like 13. And then you were like, they do what? <laughs> are, are you kidding me? And they wouldn't tell you because circumcision is bloody. It's creepy, you know? Uh, it's savage. And the reason that God said, here's going to be the sign of this covenant circumcision, is he was saying, that's the sign. If you break these covenant promises, something bloody, something creepy, something savage is going to fall if these covenant promises are broken. Okay, now watch. Watch this. So what it means, circumcision of the body was a person saying, my body will come under your loss. Circumcision of the heart is when we have a heart that wants to obey those laws. That's what a circumcised heart is. Okay, now watch this. If you look down at verse six, God says, here's what happens when I circumcise a heart. You will begin to love the Lord your God. So circumcision of the heart is an act of love. If you're still not tracking, I'm still explaining. So you're going to get it here in about 10 seconds. Circumcision of the heart is something that happens to you when you love somebody. Okay, now let me show this to you. This is actually really easy to see. Um, before I had kids, like now I got two daughters. I got Eliana seven, Felicity three. We're getting ready to bring home a little boy named Hudson sometime soon. That's going to happen. We're excited about it. But before I had kids, um, I'll be really honest. I didn't like kids before I had kids. Uh, my favorite thing about kids was that I wasn't responsible for any of them. Uh, we've got, uh, there are people and you guys are out there all over the, but we've got a few hundred, uh, people that serve in our bridge kids ministry they just, they love kids. It's like all the kiddishness and the energy and the, you know, frenetic excitement. It like energizes them. Whatever that is, I'm the opposite of that. Um, if I was the kids minister of the bridge, we would have a huge duct tape budget. That's, that's what would happen at, at the bridge. So that's our thing. So before I had kids, favorite thing was I'm not responsible for any of them. Uh, when I used to, I, by the way, this is like honesty hour. I'm getting real honest with you right now. Uh, when I was a pastor, before I had kids and I'd go visit couples in the hospital who just had babies, people always ask you like all these questions. And by the way, if I visited you in the hospital and said these things, of course I meant it for everybody except you. But you know, it's, People, they'll ask you these questions. They'll be like, hey, man, so this is our, our new son. And you know, they'll ask, like, man, do you want to hold him? And what I always wanted to say was like, not really, you know? <laughs> you know? Isn't she cute? Maybe someday, you know? I just, you know, I always want you know, that kind of stuff. But that was before I had kids. Then, <clears throat> about seven years ago, seven years ago, we brought home our, uh, our oldest daughter, Eliana, brought her home in adoption process. Three years later, we brought home our youngest daughter, Felicity. Um, I have a personal rule. Anytime I can show a picture of my kids, I do show a picture of my kids. So this is Eliana and Felicity right here, right after they watch Moana. This is, so this is Moana. So now I got permission uh, from my wife to show this picture. And let me just say this. I keep asking Jana if she'll dress up like Felicity and walk around the house. And she just keeps saying no. And I just don't understand, you know, those are my two kids. This really interesting thing happened uh, when I had kids, when we brought home our two daughters. Is beforehand, I didn't want to spend time with kids. And, uh, and I, I didn't really want to like pour my life out for kids for sure. Uh, I didn't want to make any financial sacrifices to bless a kid. I didn't even want to see a kid really, you know. Um, but then uh, when we brought home our two daughters, now it's really interesting. Now my life is the exact opposite. Um, now I literally pay large sums of money to spend time with my daughters, to go on daddy-daughter donut dates or to take them on a vacation and just to spend time with them. Um, now, just last night, family movie night, Saturday night in the Howerton house, just last night, 
I was literally bribing children to sit in my lap. I'll give you a piece of candy if you just, you know, that kind of thing. Like, I'll do that. Like, I want to spend time with them. I want to snuggle them and tuck them in bed at night. You know, I want to pour my life out for them. Now, now let me ask you this question. What happened? What happened? Well, now, now I have children that I love. And watch this. When you love somebody, how you should treat them and how you want to treat them become the same. Do you see that? Do you guys know what a circumcised heart is? A circumcised heart is when what you want to do and what you should do become the same. And God says, I love you so much. Someday I'm going to do something so deep inside of you that I will put a heart of love for you inside of you and what you should do and what you want to do, that's going to become the same. And do you realize if you had that, it would solve every problem in your life? If you had a circumcised heart, that would solve your marriage problems. If you had a circumcised heart, you could become the parent that you've always wanted to be but found yourself never to be able to become. A circumcised heart towards God, that would get rid of your crippling anxiety. It would free you from all of your addictions. If you just had a heart that loved God more than anything else in the whole world. Now, if you don't believe me, if like right now you're like, I don't know, Josh, let me show you to this, throw this to you in the Bible. There's a verse you've read a thousand times, but you didn't read it with your gospel goggles on, and so you read it the wrong way. Okay, so let me show you this. Have you guys ever seen this verse before? It's in John 14. When Jesus says this, what he's doing is he's describing a circumcised heart, okay? John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. You guys ever read that verse before? If you love me, you'll obey what I command. Now, what you probably did is you read this verse as a threat. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. That's not what this is at all. Do you know what this is? This is a promise. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this. He's saying, man, hey, listen, if you just love me, you'll obey what I command. That's just what I want you to do. Just love me. And if you just love me, you'll obey what I command. Why? Because a circumcised heart makes what I should do become what I want to do. Okay. I'll give you one last one because I really want you to I really want you to understand this. So when I was in college, I was a, 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 a Bible study leader at a Christian camp in Western Kentucky. There was one week where I was uh, teaching middle school boys and a whole group came in and they had one student in their, uh, their group that was a Japanese foreign exchange student. And uh, his name was, this was his literal name. It's very unfortunate because he was with a group of middle school boys. His literal Japanese name was first name King, middle name Man, last name Ho. That's very unfortunate when you're with middle school boys. You're all too dignified to chuckle right there. That's, that's what was going on, okay? And so I just called him Samuel. I was like, your name's Samuel this week. And so, uh, so I was his middle school uh, Bible study leader. And uh, that week, it was the first time in my whole life that I'd ever met somebody who literally didn't know anything about Christianity. Like I'd never been taught anything about Christianity. So that whole week, I just said, man, I'm going to make Samuel my goal. That's my whole goal is for him to understand the gospel. So he didn't speak much English. I figured out like, man, what can he understand? Um, I spent my time at night trying to figure out diagrams that would help him understand the gospel. To this day, a lot of the diagrams that I share with you in my sermons are diagrams that I made when I was 19 trying to teach Samuel the gospel. Okay. So I did that all week. Get to the end of the week, last day of camp, I look under a tree and there's Samuel and he looks really emotional. And I walk up to the tree and I said, hey, Samuel, what's wrong? And he, he looked at me and he, he motioned like this and he'd seen us pray. And, uh, and so I said, okay, you know, pray. And I said, you, you pray first. And, uh, and he started to try to pray in English because he was with me. 
And then he broke down and he just lapsed. It was the most beautiful prayer I've ever heard. He just lapsed into praying in his native Japanese. And, uh, and he prayed and the tears started to come. And he prayed, he prayed, he prayed. And then I prayed for him. And when he was done, he looked up at me and I, I said, Samuel, what did you just pray? And through tear-stained cheeks and broken English, he said, I pray this week I realize I'm a very bad man and I need the help of Jesus. And he gave his life to Christ, okay? Now, I know that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, that's not the best part of the story. I'm getting, that's not even the sermon illustration. So the next day is, is that night's the last night of camp. That night at the end of camp, we had this big missions offering and everybody was giving to take the gospel to another country. So we get to the end of the night and they explain what we're doing right now is we're giving to take the gospel to another country. Here's what's interesting. That night, the first student in the entire camp, 800 kids up front was Samuel. He marched right out of his seat to the front, opened his wallet and gave every dollar that he had. Now think about this. He didn't know any of the commands. No one had ever even told Samuel about the Great Commission. You're supposed to go into all the world and make uh, disciples of all nations. He didn't know that command. No one had ever told Samuel the tithing rules. You're supposed to give 10% of your income to the mission of God. No, he didn't even know that there was a greatest commandment. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't know any of the commands. He just naturally kept them anyway. Do you know why? Circumcised heart circumcised heart. He had a heart so full of love for the God that had just saved him that he just found himself naturally being a commandment keeper on accident. That's what happens. You have a circumcised heart. Now, the question is, how do you get it? That's what I need more than anything else. How do I get it? Okay. It's really interesting. This theme of circumcision, it runs through the entire Bible. I don't turn there. There's a really interesting verse. It's in Colossians chapter two where Paul says this, listen really close to this language, okay? He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, so a circumcision of the heart, by putting off the body of the flesh, listen, by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what does that mean, the circumcision of Christ? What he means is something happened to Jesus that was so bloody and so creepy and so savage. And that circumcision causes the circumcision that can take place inside of your chest. That's what that means. That circumcision causes this circumcision. Now, now watch this. Some of you are like, I, I don't quite understand. When I was in college, um, I, had to write this, uh, I had to write a biblical backgrounds paper on crucifixion. And so I read all these first century documents that were eyewitnesses' accounts of crucifixion. Um, crucifixion in ancient Rome, it was so disgusting, so gory, you could never depict it even in any American movie. Forget the Passion of the Christ, it doesn't do justice to anything. Um, it, it, crucifixion, it was, uh, it was a punishment invented by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans, so savage, so awful. We actually have a word in our English language that comes from it. Um, you guys ever heard of the word, the word excruciating? It's the highest amount of pain in the English language. The word excruciating comes from two Latin words, excruciatus. It means of or from the cross. That's what excruciating means. Um, when somebody was crucified, what they did is they were first, they were whipped with, by the way, I don't say this to be sensational. I don't say this to make you, to gross you out. I say this so that you understand why Colossians 2 says what it says. When somebody was crucified, they first whipped them with what was called a cat of nine tails. It was a series of leather strips uh, braided together with broken pieces of glass and pottery in between. 
And what they would do is as they whipped the flesh of the back of a person, those broken pieces of glass would sink into the flesh and stick. And then they would rake the cat of nine tails off the person's back. By the time they were done, it just left an exposed rib cage, exposed nerve endings on the back of a man. And when they were done, what they would do is they would put somewhere between a 100 and a 200-pound roughshod piece of wood on that person's back that would rub across those exposed nerve endings as they carried it to the place that that person was going to die. And when they got there, they would drop that piece of wood in the ground, and then they would drive nine-inch thick pieces of nail into the nerve endings, into the nerve bunches in the person's wrists and in their ankles. When a person was on the cross, they did not die from the beating. They didn't die from pain. What they died from is asphyxiation. The beating was so bad that their lungs would begin to fill with blood. And so on a cross, the only way that a person could breathe is they would have to pull up on those nail-pierced wrists and ankles to be able to get their larynx into a place where they could gasp a breath. And they would sink down, and they begin to choke again, and they have to pull up again and gasp a breath again. And they do that over and over and over. But the pain was so bad that Roman victims of crucifixion began to intentionally kill themselves. Sometimes they would pull they would pull the nails out of the flesh of their arms so they could no longer pull up, or they would just refuse to pull up and get another breath so that they would just drown to death on their blood as fast as possible. So what the Romans did is they began to fix a seat to the base of a cross so that a man had to breathe, and he would stay alive for sometimes up to three or four days. But what those men began to do is the pain was so bad they would intentionally begin to dislocate their, their hip sockets so they, they could slide off the seats and choke themselves, thus ending the pain. And so at the end, what the Romans began to do is they began to drive a nail through the genitals of a man to force him to stay on the cross as long as possible so that he would feel every ounce of pain. The pain was so great that eyewitnesses of crucifixion say that those men would become incontinent and they would lose control of their bodies and their bodies would release all their fluids. So when you approached a cross, you would smell a stench from miles away because the bases of crosses were caked with blood and urine and feces. That was done to God. Why? Well, Colossians 2 said that because the covenant was broken between God and man, that someday something so bloody, so creepy, and so savage would have to fall on somebody. And Jesus came, and he experienced the circumcision. All the covenant curses fell on Jesus at the cross for all of our disobediences to that contract. And guys, that is the best news you've ever heard. What happened in that moment is that Jesus had been cursed for my sin. Jesus had been humiliated for my sin. Jesus had been abandoned in my place. Do you guys understand? Jesus was not just cut off for me. He was cut off instead of me. He was beaten in my place. He was accused in your place. He was condemned in your place. He was defiled and killed in your place. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. What else can I say but hallelujah, what a savior. That was done for us. And in that moment, it is us. Yes, amen, yes and amen. In that moment, it is only when we see the circumcision that happened to him at the cross that we are overwhelmed with love for God inside of our chests. And that circumcision leads to this one. And so, man, what I want to do today is I want to pray that you become so overwhelmed with the love of God that the lyrics of the gospel become a dance in your heart and your feet begin to dance the dance of holy obedience to the Lord. And so can I pray for you? Can I just pray that right now God would plant that in your soul? And so will you pray with me, please? And so, Father, what I pray is that right now your Holy Spirit would apply 
the finished work of Jesus to everyone within the hearing of my voice. Father, would you wake us up to the brutal, savage, bloody, creepy reality of the Son of God being crucified for my sins. In my place, condemned he stood. So God, as we see your love for us, would you awaken in us a great love for you that circumcises our souls and makes us people who want to walk in glad obedience to the God who loved us so much he died for us. So Father, we love you. Give us that new heart. Rip out our heart of stone and implant a feeling, loving heart of flesh. I pray it for everyone here right now as we pray and call on the name of the Lord. In the name of a crucified and risen Jesus Christ, amen and amen.